Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. I'm Chris Solomon, joined today for the first time uh, from SI.com, golf.com, uh, renowned golf writer Alan Shipnook. Alan, sounds like a lot is going on in your world this week. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I'm excited. We, uh, uh, it starts with a total redesign of golf.com, which, as all of you media consumers know, is way overdue. Um, that website has been lacking for a long time, so it's going to be better top to bottom, which is great. And I'm getting my own vertical, which is industry parlance for you know basically a website within a website. We're calling it the knockdown. And it's kind of my own my own real estate to do whatever the heck I want, uh, which is exciting because you know my, the last twenty plus years writing mostly for Sports Illustrated, whatever ideas I had had to, had to go through the, the prism of what issue is the story going to go in, how many pages can we free up, um, all all these other factors that were somewhat out of my control, and now. I can really do whatever I want story-wise. Um, for sure, I'm going to keep writing long features, and even though a lot of them are going to be original for the web, I'm, I'm hoping to bring that same kind of magazine quality, but getting into podca- podcasts of my own, going to be doing a lot of video storytelling, writing live from various events, and uh, it's it's really a free-for-all. I can do travel. I can do equipment. Uh it's it's just a, a blank a blank slate at this point. So it is exciting. It's a little daunting, but um, you know, kind of going all in on, on this venture. I, I will I will still do the occasional story for Sports Illustrated, but it, it's really my this this long slow transition from print to digital is 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 kind of accelerated my life, and I'm I'm just going completely um, gangbusters now for 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 the internet, and I'm excited about it. Sounds like you signed you signed yourself up for a lot more work, though. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I, I signed away my life. <laughs> I mean, it's um, you know, it used to be if, if you wrote twenty stories a year for Sports Illustrated, you were killing it. I mean, you were like you were carrying a heavy load, and you know, I'm, I'm going to write twenty stories in the first month of this uh, of, of of the knockdown. So uh, it's definitely it's definitely a lot. A lot different pace. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it for now. Whether I actually survive the year or the the decade remains to be seen. But uh, I'm certainly energized and I'm enjoying the challenge and, and the freedom. But it is a heck of a lot of work. I can imagine. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are at least familiar with your work. But even I'm not very familiar with how your career, your writing career, started or how your career started with SI.com. So. Uh, is there a Sparknotes version of that, or do you have a do you have a do you have a prepared story for how that how your career started and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, there, there's a short, medium, and long version. I'll, we, I'll let you decide which one. We got but. plenty of time. I got nothing but time. I probably the medium version is best for this, but because we got a we got a lot of reader questions. I'm, I've never never gotten so many reader questions here, so people are excited for this. But I'm I'm curious to hear your background as well. Well, I like to say I'm the second best writer to come out of Salinas, California, but um, there's quite a big gap between one and two, number one being John Steinbeck, of course. And uh, so, you know, that, that 
Salinas is a little dusty farming town about 15 miles east of Pebble Beach. And my summer job, starting when I was a senior in high school, was a cart boy at Pebble. And that was during the, the first Japanese ownership group. There was no oversight whatsoever. So we played golf a ton. I mean, I probably played Pebble three times a week back in those days. And that's really where I learned how to play golf. And it's like losing your virginity to, you know, Jennifer Lawrence. It's all it's all downhill from there. Um, <laughs> And so we used to get these computerized printouts that would show the next day's tea times. And I'd always sift through them because, you know, one day it'd be Michael Jordan or, you know, whomever. It was obviously a lot of movers and shakers. And I saw the name Mark Mulvoy, who I knew to be the managing editor of Sports Illustrated because I've been reading the magazine since I was like eight years old. And he had a little sign, you know, publisher's memo at the front. And so I'm, I pounced on him and I said, oh, you know, Mr. Mulvoy, my dream in life is, is to write for your magazine. And. I'm an 18-year-old kid. He has, like, absolutely no use for me whatsoever. But he, he gives me his card and, you know, pats me on my head and, and sends me on my way. So I matriculate to UCLA. I send him a letter every couple months. You know, Dear Mr. Mulvoy, I'm now covering women's rugby for the Daily Bruin. <laughs> um, you know, no response. Um, I send these letters for two years. And he, so this now gets us to the summer of 1993. And... I'm flipping through the, the tea times, as always, and I see the next day, Mark Mulvoy. I can't believe it. He didn't tell me he was coming. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so hurt and disillusioned. That, it was supposed to be my day off, so actually I switched shifts so I could just be there to suck up to him again. And um, What is your policy on profanity for this? Oh, this go do what you podcast? want. For some reason, okay, we're good. still not marked explicit in iTunes, but uh, go go right ahead. All right, so so I walk up to Mulvoy. I say, "Oh, dear, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mulvoy, it's Alan Shipnuck. You know, I used to." And he cuts me off. Says, "Oh yeah, you're the little shit ass who sent me all those letters." And um, I said, "Yeah, that was me. Thanks. So at least you know they existed." So my timing was impeccable because uh, Sports Illustrated is just about to launch the Golf Plus franchise uh, in January of '94, and he was realizing that they might actually have some use for an intern. So after a lot of correspondence. He wound up offering me an internship. I dropped out of UCLA, moved to New York in a blizzard in January, and Golf Plus just turned out to be a home run. We couldn't; the advertising money was pouring in so fast, we literally could not fill the pages. So they sent me out to do a few little stories, and they got bigger and bigger. And I wound up writing a cover story when I was still an intern, and that kind of secured my employment after college. So I went back and I finished my degree, and then. I turned pro the same year as Tiger Woods. You know, I, I graduated from UCLA in, in the spring of '96, and he left Stanford that summer. So again, right place, right time. And um, you know, I, I've been I've been Sports Illustrated ever since. So it, it is, you know, definitely a little bit of hustle, maybe a, a, a couple drops of talent, but mostly it was just uh, taking advantage of a of a great opportunity. And, um, you know, and the game was exploding at that very moment. So I, it really was um, was ideal circumstances. Well timed. So so we uh, Randy wrote this thing a couple of years ago where he did this study of uh, I've, I've referenced this on the podcast probably five times. So the, the constant listeners will be annoyed by this at this point. But we call it the Tiger Tax, where he estimated how much money Tiger added to the game. And part two never came out, but it was supposed to invoice certain players to say. Hey, this is how much how, how much do you think you would owe Tiger Woods based on your career earnings? So it sounds like we may have to do a writer version of that with you as far as how much of your career earnings do you, do you have tied to Tiger Woods and the success of golf since he came into the game? 
Yeah, just take like take Phil's number and drop a few zeros, <laughs> and it's you know probably comparable. But yeah, it, it certainly you know the the first time I ever saw Tiger Woods hit a golf ball in person was the '97 Masters. So uh, it was it was really it just a in, incredible. Um, timing to launch a career in the golf media and i've i've ridden the wave like a lot of other people so um i, I thank tiger in the abstract um but uh you know i i, I like to think that, that there would always be something else to write about and of course in this post tiger era i'm still trying to pump out good stories but there, there's no question he uh, he made it a better beat for a long time so what is, uh, with the transition that Golf.com is making, that you're making, what are you, um, I guess, is it kind of a bittersweet transition for you, or what are you, What do you? Uh, I guess, what's your take on the current state of the way golf is covered, uh, what, are you, what are you hoping, I guess, necessarily to accomplish with this transition? Yeah, I'll always venerate the long, elegant magazine story. You know, that, that's kind of what I always aspired to, to do, and, and I've had been fortunate enough to be given a few opportunities. Uh, and I'm still hoping to write those kind of stories for the knockdown. The difference is, even even at Sports Illustrated, you know, a big media company, even whether it's Golf Digest, you name it, the, writing for the web has always been an afterthought. It's always been secondary. So. When I would be at the majors the last few years, I, I would bat out a couple stories, you know, live from Augusta or wherever. But I would never get on an airplane just to just to write for Golf.com. That that just didn't happen. And if I had if I had a great feature idea, all I did was pitch it to SI and wait for them to say yes. Um, and so now we're we're just we've totally flipped the script where I'm just I'm just getting on the airplane for for Golf.com and for the for the knockdown and. You know, it, it's it's great because there's no production schedule, there's no space limitations, uh, there, there's not the multi uh, layers of editing. Uh, although I certainly have people in the office who are, are helping with the finished product, but it's uh, I'm finding it totally liberating. I, I can really do whatever I want, and even even to the point of travel. Like I just decided, you know, I've never covered Dubai. It'll be the second week since we've launched this this thing. I'm, I'm just going to go to Dubai. I, I didn't even ask anyone. I just bought the ticket. And, um, <laughs> you know, at some point, the money may run out, but we're not there yet. And so, uh, and also, we're, we're really focused on video. So, like at Torrey Pines, I'm going to go up on Wednesday, uh, weather permitting. You know, in a paraglider with a bunch of GoPros, and we'll just we'll just bang out a three or four minute really fun video about that. I might Facebook Live it. You know, holding my phone. Uh, you know. That, that kind of thing is probably not going to translate into a, a really fun read in print, but it's a great video. And, um, you know, when, when the knockdown launches, I have, I've got an hour-long podcast of Phil Mickelson, and he was spectacular. And for whatever reason, he said yes, you know, to that. And the intimacy, as you know, of a podcast is great, where your fans get to really hear someone someone's voice in a different way. And uh, so I'm trying to take advantage of, of that platform and, um, so I think, I think the golf media is in a state of heavy tumult right now. You know, at the end of 2016, there were a lot of layoffs. You know, SI lost Gary Van Sickle, and and our sister magazine, Golf Magazine, lost Cameron Morfitt. It was um, whether it was Golf Week, whether it was Golf Digest. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of attrition, and that's been happening year after year. So. The golf media is shrinking and the resources are dwindling, but you know we've kind of doubled down, and so it, 
I think I think it's kind of exciting because people people in in the golf media are still treating the web as as a secondary enterprise, which makes absolutely no sense. So we're um, we we we're trying to we're trying to take a different approach, and you know certainly what you know what you guys have done at, at No Laying Up has has shown uh, the, the broader media that you can build a huge following without a print component, but. Um, I'm, I think I'm still trying to keep some of that old DNA in the kind of stories I'm writing. And, you know, no one's really doing long form journalism for, for in the golf media, except for the occasional, you know, piece that might, might drop in, in golf digest or golf magazine. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to keep that alive as, as best I can. And, and then we'll also kind of really, really going all out on these, these other platforms. Yeah, I think, uh, the podcast form, and I was just curious to get your your thoughts on how players view the way they get their message out or the way they view the media now. Because um, I, I think it's interesting how we, it, to be honest, how easy it is sometimes for me to get like a player to do want to do a podcast. Um, you you know they have so many press and media obligations where they're answering kind of the same old questions over and over again, and then. You know, they give their quotes, and then after they give their quotes, it can become whatever that writer wants it to be. Whereas where they, they have this podcast option where the listener can hear the inflection in their voice, can hear them laugh about a certain comment and understand the context of that comment rather than, you know, if you take a, a certain comment word for word that they say, it may sound completely different than it does coming out of their mouths. So, uh, do you see, I guess, do you notice it talking to players or being closer to the ground than I am that, that players are kind of conscious of, of that, of that kind of movement and wanting to take more control of their own narrative and their own stories? Is that kind of what kind of helped, uh, generate what you're going to be doing now and the fact that you're adding this podcast and whatnot? Yeah, no question. Um, the idea of not having a filter is, is attractive, and I, I think it started with social media, where where players realized I, I really can reach out directly to the fans, and podcasts are a way of, of still interacting with with members of the media, but in, in a way that gives them a little more sense of control. So I think I think there's a lot more enthusiasm for podcasts than there ever has been, and they just become consumers as well. I, I think a lot of these, you know these guys spend a lot of time on the road. And, um, they've, they've, they've found their own podcast they enjoy listening to and they realize, hey, it'd be cool to be a part of that as well. So, you know, that that's that's the biggest change, I think, that's, that's happening throughout the media, not just in golf, but um, the traditional gatekeepers are, are kind of losing their purchase a little bit. And, you know, I mean, you've shown yourself, Chris, that, I mean, you, you can start as, as a fan and you can transition into something else and, and be taken very seriously and, and attract you know, whether it's it's Jordan or it's Rory, you're going to attract the biggest names who want to be part of, of what you're doing. And I think that's obviously disruptive and a little unsettling to uh, the traditional writers who are used to being treated with a certain deference and, and being in control of, of how the, the, the players reach the fans. And so I'm, I'm sure you've, you've noted a little turbulence coming your way mm-hmm. and that, that's probably inevitable. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess I, I was I was of the old school, and I was I was part of that 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 um, that small select group that, that enjoyed the benefits of the exclusive exclusive relationship we had with the players, and that that's broken down. And so 
think that's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now is I don't want to get left behind. You know, you have to, you have to adapt or you become an absolute dinosaur. My, my allegiance to print was already pushing me in that direction. So, um, you know, I, I think I'm just trying to personally trying to, you know, reinvent myself to, to stay relevant. I think other members of the media should probably make a little more effort to do the same thing. That's and I, you kind of answered the next question I had, and that uh, yeah, I do catch catch grief from any time I disagree with any writer that's on the ground. Uh, you get the still somehow to this day still get the blogger living in grandma uh, their parents' basement uh, reference, which just blows my mind. I mean, you you have you have a lot of free time, you have time to come up with something better than that at that point. But uh, I think that there's a gap between like people that do kind of what we do, which is mostly online and um, and what people on the ground do that, you know, they're at the tournaments and I understand, you know, being there and getting the quotes and, you know, working on the ground and getting the stories and the hotel rooms and the expenses and kind of that feeling of, Hey, like I'm, I'm actually here. This guy's on the other side of the world. Why, why am I you know getting flack from him? But I, I think it, 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 uh, the reason why like I, I'm critical at times or I question people at times is I, you I think the, your readers and your fans and, and they're using you like the, the media and as the, we're, you're the window into the sport, right? I mean, and aside from what we've been talking about, how the access part is kind of shifting more towards this online space. It's like there was a time when you guys were the only access you had. So we make fun of some of the questions that get asked because it's not in tune with what your readers are necessarily uh, wanting to read or the stories that they want to read. And uh, people can get in this transition into this internet age where you, the editors or the people in charge, the, the people that you're reporting up to, they care a lot about the numbers. They care a lot about what articles are, are attracting a lot of views. And, and it can be really hard to balance between you know, uh, providing a product to your, re, your, your true fan base versus doing something that is you know, you know is going to get a lot of clicks, even though it's going to be divisive, it's going to be sometimes a bit trashy and sometimes not that relevant. So uh, I hate how whenever I'm critical of anything like that, everything gets so defensive and they point to the fact that you're not on the ground. So do you, do you see both sides of that? And are you, are you, uh, are you kind of, do you agree a bit with both sides or where do, where do you find yourself on the line in, in, in that, in that kind of spectrum? Yeah. Well, for starters, golf is always at least a decade behind yeah. everything, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, um, Shoal Creek or the Augusta National membership policies or whatever, whatever societal issue it is, golf is always late. And we've seen that also media wise. Um, it was the golf media followed a very traditional model uh, and propped up by the fact that there's this huge industry that still wants to advertise in print. And so I think golf has been very slow to see the world changing. Um, around us and the players through social media help help spur that along but it, it, there's still among the media there there is this you know this sense that um, we're the gatekeepers of all knowledge and you know the fan at home knows that you know to be plainly untrue hmm. and so I, I do have a foot in both camps you know I like I like the stuff that that you guys do. I think it cap, it captures the energy of real fanhood, and um, and I, I think in some ways you're, you're more plugged into the readers than even than 
we are as the writers, which sounds backwards, but, um, and so not, you know, I don't want to be blowing sunshine up your ass this whole time. There's, there's <laughs> other, there's other sites that are, they're doing it really well also, but, um, since it's your podcast, we'll use no laying up as the model, <laughs> but, um, there is, there is value at being on site at tournaments. I don't think yeah. there's, any, there's any, any question about that. And so it, it does give us, um, you know, some, some advantages. You have a lot of, you know, what you get in the press conferences is the party line. And then what you get in the locker room and the driving range and the putting green is often different. And so yep. I, the writers who were there have, have a lot of insight into what's happening even if it doesn't always show up in print. And um, so, and there's, there's also the other relationship you can build with the wives, with the caddies, with the people who are not as maybe as active on social media as the players, but you know, they, they know where all the bodies are buried. So um, for sure um, it, it helps to be out on tour and, and to building those relationships. But I think it's folly to dismiss people who aren't there as not knowing what they're talking about um, and that they're, their opinions are less valid. Um, I, I try to never do that because I'm aware that, uh, I mean, you probably watch more golf than I do. I mean, I have four kids. I'm coaching two basketball teams. Um, I'm on airplanes a lot. Um, you know, the, the collective of no laying up, I'm sure is watching more golf on TV than I am. So um, if you spot something, you know, cool or funny, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the service, but um it, it is it's an interesting moment because that that tension is, is getting exacerbated as you know as the players are are starting to branch out away from the traditional old media models and you know if they go on your podcast it makes it harder for me or for someone else who in the in the traditional golf media to get them because they say hey we just did that so I don't want to do it again so yeah. I, I think what you're getting is a feeling of, of you know, it's disruption and it's, it's a threat. It's, it's, it's competition. So I'm not sure if you're being dismissed so much as you're being challenged as, um, you know, you're making people uncomfortable and, um, it may come out as condescension, but, but I think it comes from a different place where it's really, it's really a sense of, man, this person might be doing my job better than I'm doing. And that's a, that's a problem. Well, I'm, I'm glad, A, that I've tricked you into thinking that I watch a lot of golf. Uh, B, I definitely agree that there is value in, in being on the ground, definitely. And I've done both. Like I, I've, not, I've def- obviously way more tournaments from, a, from abroad than I have in person. But I've done the in-person thing. I see the value in it. But at the same time, I have a hard time when I'm there seeing the big picture of the tournament. I get caught up in following one person or two people. And uh, kind of get you know focus on that and enjoy that more than I do really know the actual tournament. Like if I had the option, obviously if I had the option to cover the Masters, I would do it. But I think I would have a hard time following the golf tournament from the golf course instead of watching it on TV. So at times I feel like you're almost. And I know people sit in the press center and watch the end of a tournament so they can understand what's going on there and whatnot. But one question I wanted to ask you as far as when you're when you're on the ground, you're talking to people, you're talking to wives, talking to caddies. What's your general rule of thumb for when you're told something, uh, what, what the rules are on having to keep that secret, right? Because we all know that there's, you know, you have relationships, guys tell you things and you have to, uh, some things stick out as like, well, okay, I can't repeat that. But before you share anything, do you confirm it with somebody that you're allowed to share it? I always wanted like an industry, industry tactic on that. Yeah, it, that's, it's a really fluid um, dynamic and... 
my operating principle is I'm a reporter. We're at a tournament. Anything you tell me is on the record and is usable unless you explicitly say it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably a more aggressive um, attitude than a lot of other reporters have. And I have gotten some blowback over the years. But, uh, you know, take like Bob Verdi. Everyone used to call him Uncle Bob. He, um, he wrote for Golf World before that, the Chicago Tribune. And Uncle Bob knew everything. Every player told him every secret. And he never printed any of it. Now, it helped him build these relationships, and so then when he wanted to go do a feature, maybe the player was more inclined to say yes. On the other hand, the guy's going to die with three books worth of great <laughs> material. Uh, that would kill me. I, I couldn't stand that. So, um, you know, obviously, if you're, if, you're, if you're standing with a guy and a pretty girl goes by and he comments on her figure in yeah. um, and you know he's married. Like, is it worth putting that on Twitter and blowing the whole relationship up? Probably not. But if it's something that's germane, that's uh, you know a really important nugget of information about a, a something that's topical, then you know you got to go with it. I mean, ultimately, my job is not to be buddies with the with the players. It's to service the readers, and uh, people want to know this stuff. So. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely, you know, I've had guys in my face. I think there was one point around the turn of the century when five of the top six in the world ranking weren't speaking to me. And, um, you know, I've, I've had Ernie L's in my face. I've had Phil, I've had, you know, I've had Furyk. I've had guys who were really pissed off about things that I wrote, but to me, it's sort of a badge of honor. It means, it means, a, you know, you're doing your job. If, if everyone's always happy with you, then you're probably being a little soft. And um, but you know, the converse is if everyone's pissed off at you all the time, then you're Skip Bayless and you've probably gone too far. So you know, you have to find you have to find that happy place in between. But um, you know, I'm a reporter and you're an athlete, and when we're talking. You know, this everything is an interview of sorts. Now. Um, I, I will. I do. I do have some compassion, and I do have some sensibilities. Or I, I don't want to burn things to the ground for no reason. But in general, if you tell me stuff, I want to use it, and that's just how I feel. Okay, well, you can save it till after we're done recording here, because I want to know who uh, who was catcalling at the woman that walked by. But uh, I, that's something that I definitely struggle with. Is based on what you just said. Like if you're if everyone's happy, then you're probably you're probably too soft on them. Like. As I've gotten to know players, I'm way too soft on them now. I feel bad, like, and that's just that's a difference. Hopefully, what I think is okay difference between how you do it and how I do it is I am coming just from the fan perspective. But uh, yeah, I feel like once I get to know a guy, I'm always like afraid if I joke about him, he's not going to get the joke or he's not going to think I'm joking. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that. I'll leave the uh, ruffling the feathers to you. Um, but I have a question. Before I forget to get to it, uh, Tron is is demanding that I ask you this question. And let me say, let me say first, I don't know what the, any of this means. Okay, for the record, but he he wants to know how has the relationship between Will Martinson and Tree Tremont evolved since Tree's time in the facility? <laughs> well. Clearly, I need to international FedEx uh, overnight a, a copy of The Swinger to you. Okay. That, that's, the, that's the novel that um, I co-wrote with Michael Bamberger about a, a cross-cultural golfing icon who, whose life is torn asunder by a tabloid-fueled sex scandal. <laughs> now, 
What the inspiration for was that, I cannot say, um, mostly on orders of Simon & Schuster lawyers, but um, some people think it's about Tiger Woods. Um, you know, I guess maybe in hindsight there's a few parallels. And Will Martinson on the surface seems to be a lot like Phil Mickelson, but um, so... Uh, and in fact, uh, Tree Tremont does wind up in a sex addiction facility, and uh, it's the whole thing is explored in great detail. So that is what Tron is referring to. Gotcha. And um, the relationship has evolved on the page, and I've actually been been pushing Bamberger for years that we should write a sequel where the Will Martinson character would be the protagonist because. Um, there might be some great source material floating around out there if we could just pull it together from a whole series of different players. Would be, it'd be a composite character. It wouldn't be based on Phil at all, but um, you know, you never know what mischief that Will Martinson might get it, get himself into. So that could still happen someday. We'll see. But um, you know, that that book is one I'm very proud of. It, it definitely found a a good readership when it came out, and I think it's actually aged really well over the last three or four years as as um, as uh, we've gotten to this late period of Tiger Woods and again if you compare their lives I guess there are some similarities and um, so yeah I'm glad that Tron is, is is a faithful reader put it that way he's been telling me about that book for honestly like like years I'm not sure when that came out but he has been he's I it's been brought up like at least annually for I want to say like six years. I have no idea what when you actually released it, but I've heard enough about it. I've never actually picked it up and read it. So yeah, you will have to send me a copy, and I will read it. But and okay. I, I want to get to, I want to get to Randy's too before I forget. He wants to know where the bodies are buried. Uh, I don't know exactly what he means there, but uh, his real question is he wants to know what Bamberger's Twitter account, Twitter handle is on his burner account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love Bamberger. He's one of my best friends, and. He's a quirky guy, but you know, to what we were talking about before, probably the two best golf writers on the planet are Michael Bamberger and Jaime Diaz, and neither one tweets. Yeah, you know, like, maybe, maybe there's something to that. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're not wasting all their time on their stupid phones, but it's like you know. And granted, they're both in their fifties or however old they are. I mean, they're maybe pushing sixty by now. And um, but. You know, it's hard to imagine if you were the best writer on the NBA beat, you wouldn't tweet, or on the NFL, or um, you know, Major League Baseball. It's just, it's just another you know marker of how. And I love Jaime. Jaime's like one of my one of my mentors, and one of my you know, he's a great friend. I, it's no disrespect either one because they're they're both tremendous at their jobs, but they're not on Twitter. I mean, that's where that's where you know golf fans get their information these days, and so uh, it, it's just another way to. Um, to acknowledge that the golf media is a little behind the times. Well, on the topic, uh, we were just talking about the man himself. Uh, again, I I think, at least in my head, I try to avoid talking Tiger stuff, but probably end up uh, saying that more, more and more frequently every week. But Tiger is making his regular PGA Tour season return for the first time in since, I don't know, almost almost two years. Uh, do uh, do you have any major expectations for him this week? Will you be surprised if he makes the cut? What do you think a good week is for him? Well, making the cut would be a good week by definition. Um, I was one of the guys on the ground at the Hero, and you know it was it was impressive. A lot of the shots he played. I mean, I have I haven't seen Tiger hit high towering draws with his driver in you know a decade. Um, and he hit a lot of really quality iron shots. And, you know, being that close to him, 
the, the body language, just hearing the strike. Um, I thought I thought the good stuff came out that week far outweighed the bad. You know, we, you take any golfer who's away from tournament golf for that long, they're going to make mistakes, and, and clearly Tiger made a bunch. But I, I was encouraged. But realistically, he has a really long way to go. I mean, <laughs> there's, the short game issues are still there. I mean, the the chip yips lives inside of you like a virus, and it is just waiting to flower at the worst possible time. And he's going back to Torrey Pines, which was, you know, the scene of the crime, really. You know, in 2015, that was that was when it was really gnarly. So I, I would I would think that for Tiger. A successful week is just hitting good shots, not not yipping, holding out his putts inside of three or four feet, and whatever the numbers are, so be it. You know, he's got you know three more tournaments stacked up here in, in short order to try and build on it. Um, but I, I'm still of the belief that if Tiger comes back and wins any golf tournament, even if it's the Bob Hope, it's one of the great you know accomplishments of his entire career. And that's how tall the mountain is for him to climb. So, um, you know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he will reinvent himself yet again. But you look at just the way his game has deteriorated, the questions about his health, the incredible you know mental scar tissue that's come from you know shooting 85 the Memorial and taking a six inch divot on the first hole at at the old course and all the other you know ritual humiliations he's suffered. You know putting three balls in the water at Congressional on a hundred yard you know hole in a hit and giggle situation. Um, you know, so many things have affected Tiger's self-image, and then and then you go back to the root cause of all this. You know, the the worst public shaming of the internet age, and, and how that's that's destroyed his own self-image, and and you know, fundamentally changed who he is. I mean, I just I just feel like he's been so far gone, and to think that he's going to get back to where he was is just wishful thinking. I was going to say, was that supposed to make me feel better? I feel like at the beginning it did, but man, you went through about. Ten really traumatizing things there. I'm not bad. I, my confidence is at an all time low right now, based on what you just told me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to be a realist, I guess. And so, people, when you do that, people think you're a downer. But I mean, if you just think about what Tiger's been through the last couple of years, um, it, it's incredible that he's even, he's even back. That he's even thrown himself into the into the fire again. So, I commend him for even trying, but. Um, I guess I guess I need to see it to believe it. It's, I'm past the point of, of just being blindly optimistic. Yeah, I, I took a lot of, and I, I was I was very pleasantly surprised that he led the field in birdies at the Hero. I thought he struck his irons almost as good as he could, all things considered. He wasn't mid two thousands Tiger striking his irons, but I thought the tee ball just had me a bit worried because he was missing both ways, and those fairways are not narrow at Albany, and I feel like. I have a hard time seeing him playing from the middle of the fairway at Torrey. So did you see enough? Like, and I know you mentioned that he's moving the ball right to left and some kind of new developments there, but did you see enough from him off the tee to make you think that he can piece it together? Because I think that's the biggest question mark in his game right now. It sounds like you're still concerned about the chip yips. I'm not as concerned with those, but I'm just concerned about him getting off the tee. Do you think that's not maybe not as big of an issue as I'm making it out to be? No, I mean, it, it's a huge issue, and it's, it's been pouring in California, so that rough at Torrey is going to be so wet and thick and, and juicy that it's going to be really penal. Um, so, yeah, the two-way miss is a, is a, is a concern. Uh, the reason that, that the fact that he was playing a draw was, was interesting is he's just played with so much fear off the tee. 
I mean, Tiger's the first player I ever saw hit a cut shot off number 13 in Augusta National. You know, he was so afraid of trying to turn it over that he, he was he was playing a he was playing a, a fade over the trees. I mean, that's just the quintessential. Just step up there, hit a big rope hook, and I mean, every tour player in the world hit that shot, and, and Tiger lost the ability to do that. Some of it was technical. I think a lot of it was emotional and, and metaphysical. So um, that's why I thought those shots at, at Albany were were of note. But you know, he's. He's only average to above average length at this point. So if you're not going to be crazy long, you have to be accurate. And he, he's neither right now. So getting off the tee is, is a massive issue and, and will be until further notice. Uh, Bruce Kenderson wants to know, he wants you to guess who, he's, who Tiger's paired with this week. Uh, and I want to know within that, do you have, does Tiger have any pull or, any, or does Steiny have any pull on who Tiger gets, ends up getting paired with? I mean, so for, for most of the tour history, it was just blindly spit out of, by a computer. And so that was always the fallback where they, anyone could say, you know, these, these, this was random. Oh, Tiger got paired with, you know, he got, he got paired with Phil. That's, we had nothing to do with that. But, you know, as in the last few years, they transitioned to these featured groups, and, and the tour has admittedly started monkeying with the pairings. And at that point, everyone has a say in it. And whether the tour wants to acknowledge that or not, you know that that Steiny's in 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 Jay Monahan's ear and um, on down the list. So whether or not it gets listened to and, and how much that gets micromanaged, I can't really say. But you know, there's certainly some lobbying going on. And honestly, I think that was part of why Tiger, you know, pressed eject at, at the Safeway because Phil had had really you know he made that big thing about it, that he wanted to pair, be paired with them, and and then it, you know sources close to the tournament said it was going to happen and. I'm not sure Tiger was like, man, forget that. Yeah, that's my worst. That's my worst nightmare to go out there and have Phil show me up. And so, um, you know, I, I could definitely see some behind the scenes lobbying just to make sure that particular pairing doesn't happen. Um, you know, I could see him. The, the tour wants Tiger to succeed. They want him to be happy. They want him to feel taken care of because they still need him. So, I could see him getting, you know, Matt Kuchar or you know one of his old standbys. That, that's it. You know, when he when he came back from the scandal and played the Masters, his first round back, Augusta National paired him with Cooch, and that was a Tiger's request, and so that's a comfortable pairing for him. You know, he, he has he has his guys that he likes, um, but I can't say I really have any insight into who, who it's actually going to be. But it'll it'll be an interesting little subplot when those pairings come out. Yeah, I, I was just curious because of Patrick Reed being kind of a late entry into this tournament. I thought that maybe I have <laughs> no idea if that is the if there is any link there, but uh, I just wouldn't be surprised to see the two of them paired together again, considering he basically paired himself with him uh, down in Albany. Um, but you mentioned Jay Monahan, and I, I'm curious. You seem to you're you're quite the plugged in guy. I can't find anyone that has a negative thing to say about this guy. And when I talk to Bones. Bones went just almost out of his way to praise this guy and, and, and to kind of rave about what the direction he thought of the tour and where Jay was going to take it. So have you, do you know Jay Monahan and are you getting that same vibe from people you talk to? And based on if you do know him, uh, are you getting that same vibe from him? I am getting that same vibe and I'm deeply suspicious. Um, <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable how much people like this guy. Um, I really don't know. Um, I, I I've been in a couple of small group chats and I've seen him around, but I've never spent any quality time with a guy. And I did, in fact, ask him to be on my podcast, got rejected. Two years ago when he was made the deputy, I, I asked to do a story. The tour shot me down saying that um, 
you know, is still Fincham's show. So I don't know if they're trying to protect him or if they have this big choreographed media rollout or, you know, maybe maybe it's just he's, he's rich, thinks he's busier than he is. But um, so I, I, I haven't been spending, spending time with him. So uh, I've heard all the same stories as everybody else. I, I know his background. I know his various successes. And he seems like a, like a great choice. And, and the people who do know him love the guy. So, um, you know, I'm detecting the same energy you are. But I, I have no insight there. And I'm hoping to get some. You know, I, I did a big story on Fitchum three or four years ago and really got to be in his orbit and found that fascinating. And um, I don't think Monahan is, is as complicated a character as Fincham is. He doesn't have the same kind of interesting background in politics and, and law. And um, he's, he's much more kind of a, a new generation um, Mike Wan style leader trying to traffic and transparency and, and, and openness. Whereas, you know, Fincham was of the Dean Beeman slash Kremlin school. So um, it's going to be an interesting contrast, and I, I think people are excited about. It. He's going to bring a certain sunlight to the tour that's been lacking. But uh, hopefully, he's got a few demons and there's a few skeletons. Otherwise, he's going to be the world's most boring commissioner. <laughs> uh, all right, I was really just being courteous and waiting 40 minutes to ask this one because uh, I think it's why most people are tuning in here. You're the last known person person that I know that spoke with Anthony Kim. What can you tell us? What do you know? Anything? Any developments since you did the, the feature piece on him? When was that? Was that last year or two years ago? No, it was. I, I think it was the fall of fourteen, actually. Oh, wow. And um, subsequent to that, he did a, a little phone interview with Doug Ferguson. So Fergie might be the last okay. guy who who has spoken to him. And I famously didn't get him. You know, I taped a note on his front door because I'd been to his house in Dallas. And that led one of his one of his boys to call me back and gave me a lot of insight into a lot of things, but. Um, you know, AK spent the better part of a week dodging me, and I tried hard. I mean, I went, I went to the champagne room at his favorite strip club, <laughs> and uh, I went to all his favorite bars. By the way, I'm, I might be the only guy who's been able to expense, you know, two hundred dollars at baby dolls. But it's again, you have to go where the story takes you, and um, and the readers have a right to know. So, um, yeah, so. I do, I, you know, I've done some big stories on AK previously, and that's why I thought he would talk to me, and I spent some time around him. I like the guy. He's a fun character. I like what he brought between the ropes. I liked all the noise that followed him. I mean, that, 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 was, that, was, that was needed. It was a breath of fresh air. So, you know, I've, I've went, after the story came out, a lot of people contacted me claiming to know X, Y, and Z. And supposedly he, he was renegotiating his big insurance payout, and that would, that would allow him to get back into golf um, sooner rather than later. But every day that goes by, it's less and less likely we're going we're gonna to see him, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. So yeah. I've, I've given up waiting on AK. But if he does decide to peg it at some mini tour event in Texas, I will be there because uh, I'm deeply fascinated by the guy. And I'd love to watch him play again. It was a blast to, you know, his, what, what he brought to the game was, was just was great fun, even if people didn't didn't necessarily like it. I loved it. Yeah, that was that was an alternative fact for me that I uh, that I that I said I forgot that you hadn't talked to him that you had just talked to his friends. But did any of his buddies get in trouble from that? Did you ever hear from his buddies that they uh, whoever you talked to did anybody get in trouble for sharing too much information? He, um, this one particular guy was he. It may have created a little disturbance in the force for him, but at the same time, he had an agenda. I mean, he was talking to me because he wanted to get AK off his couch. Yeah. And he, 
he was as frustrated as I was. And so it was a calculated move on his part. And uh, honestly, I haven't reached out to him in a while. So I, I don't know what he's doing. But the people in AK's life come and go. I mean, that's just the nature of his life and, and the people he attracts. So there's probably a whole new set of lackeys, but I'm, I haven't kept up with it, and I don't know who they are. If it's anything like... It, Anything like the, the, some of the DMs I've gotten of people claiming to know what he's doing, I, I've heard it all the way down to he's trying to get his amateur status back. Um, so I, I've I've kind of given up trying to tra- trying to trace it down and try to figure it out because, like you said, every day that goes by um, is just one less one less the, the likelihood of, a, of it ever the comeback happening is is minuscule at this point. But I'm refusing to give up. Uh, Adam Sarson has a great question: Who haven't you written a profile on that you'd still love to tackle or love to track down? Well, I just I just reeled that white whale in, um, you know, put, put a harpoon through him. Um, so, as part of the launch for the, for the knockdown, I, I have a big feature on Pat Perez, who's wow. a guy I've always been interested in. And, you know, prepare the fire emojis. It, he just he was spectacular, completely uncensored. Um, <laughs> it's a really, really fun story. I will tell you, that it led to a large internal debate at SI on what's the proper stylistically way to handle hand job. Um, and there's about, I can't even count the number of F-bombs and other bits of profanity that are in the story. It's just, it's hysterical. And But I think at the same time, you know, Pat's a very human guy. He's a very open book and he's sensitive in his own ways. And I, I think I was able to bring that out too. And um, it's a super fun read. So he's, He's, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to retire from, from golf riding, but uh, I was happy to get that one done. And uh, I think people are going to love that when that drops in a couple days. Um, you know, there, there's a few. I'm attracted to the fringe players, you know, like the Kevin Naws, the Pat Perez's, the, the guys who have, um, have a story to tell. You know, Jordan Spieth is an interesting player, and I like to watch him play, but I, I'm not sure how deep you can go with him. You know, his, his life is um, its in, in a certain vein. There hasn't been a lot of – there's not many demons there. You know, there's there's not that much uh, dramatic tension in the narrative, um, although I, I would like to do a big story on Jordan at some point. But I think, um, you know, I, I'm, always, I'm always looking for less obvious people – And, of course, I'm not at liberty to say who they are until it's in print, so um, I I can't totally give it up. But I have my eye on three or four right now, and I'm I'm talking – I'm in different phases of of the courtship. And um, if I can can get a couple of these in the barn, they're going to be spectacular. So I'll keep you posted. How about that? Yeah, there we go. You can tell me offline as well, but – uh, no, not yeah. Those are my favorite things that you do. I, I think it's as soon as those come out, it's uh, it's an automatic read and almost an automatic share for me. And I, I want no, no exception to that. Obviously, was the DJ piece. Uh, Mustard Tiger asked a great question: What didn't make it into the DJ piece that you can share? Hmm, that's a good one. Um, you know, it was interesting because I've been writing about DJ for a long time and. I actually, I, I, it's funny. I found myself in the middle of his whole little fling with Natalie Golbis. Like, I went and hung out with with Dustin in October, whatever that year was, two thousand and twelve, maybe, at his place in South Carolina. He's living with his girlfriend Amanda, 
And we had three meals together, you know, me, Dustin, and Amanda. We're on the boat, and, you know, she's part of the story because she's just there. And then I go over to Kapalua, and I'm standing by the clubhouse, and, and Natalie sashays by. And I know Natalie. She gives me a hug, and I'm like, well, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm kind of hanging out with Dustin. I was like, oh, really? And um, she said, yeah, I'm going to go out and follow him. I just got off the airplane. And so... I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. So now I'm, I'm in a little bit of a pickle here because I've got all this material. I haven't written my story. It was going to it was gonna come out in February. So I'm like, well, you can't hide Natalie Goldwyn, and you especially can't do it at that tournament, which is so intimate when everyone's hanging out at the same hotel and there's no fans on the golf course. And So I said, all right, I need to be the person to break this news. It might as well come for me. It's going to get out anyway. It, it may blow up this whole Dustin feature, but, you know, so be it. So... Um, and one of the things Natalie says to me is, you know, I don't really want to be quoted about it. You know, you, you know, talk to Dustin. He's handling our PR. Which you know, Dustin, <laughs> Dustin, doesn't ha- Dustin doesn't handle PR. Right away, that relationship was doomed. That's what Natalie thought. But so she goes out to follow him, and I wait for Dustin behind 18, and he, like, runs out of the scorer's tent and sprints up the hill to the clubhouse and I can't catch him. The guy's a, he's got a head start. He's faster than I am. And he just flat out disappears. Now, the reason why he hadn't seen Natalie, Natalie just got off the airplane. She's waiting in the hotel room for, we know why Dustin's in a hurry to go get there. Right. And so, so now I'm like, Oh God bless. I gotta, I gotta fact check this. I can't run it without getting Dustin. So again, since it's, it's Kapalua, I know he's staying at the Ritz. So I call the Ritz. And Dustin, probably not clever enough to have an, you know, an assumed name. So I said, yeah, can you connect me to Dustin Johnson's room, please? And sure enough, the phone rings. And now I'm getting nervous. Like, what if he answers? I hadn't even really thought about it. But he picks up the phone. He's, like, panting. He's out of breath. And I'm like, hey, Dustin, you know, I'm sorry to bother you. He's like, dude, uh, I, I got to go. Call me an hour. Click. So I might have, you know, he might have been a little busy at the moment, if, if you know what I mean. And... I call back in an hour to fact check, you know, he never answers. I'm like, well, Nally told me, whatever. I don't really need Dustin's comment. So I write the, sto- I write the story for golf.com. It, go- it blows up. It goes crazy everywhere. And I still have to write this Dustin story. And, um, you know, things fall apart with Natalie very quickly. Her people are, like, sending me. They're calling me saying, hey, will you, will you send out a, a tweet about Natalie and how she's being so classy in the breakup? And I'm like, I don't, she has her own Twitter, man. I don't want to get any more involved than I already am. Like, I'm not doing any dirty work on this breakup. And um, so Dustin comes out to Pebble Beach for uh, for the media day. He's defending champ. And so I, I catch him. And, you know, this is this is probably late January. In fact, he might have come straight from Kapalua now I think about it. And I say to him, I say, hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to blow up your spot. <laughs> He's like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I said, like, how did Dustin Johnson get over, you know, whistling straights and all these other blow-ups? Well, he got over breaking up with Natalie Gold was really fast, so clearly he can get, he can get over anything. So um, that's just that's a long answer to your, your question about, about Dustin. But um, now he's in a whole different part of his life, and he's like this settled down, you know, family man, and all he's doing is hitting the gym and hitting, working on a swing, and he really has become a lot more boring. And I think that bodes well for his um, for his his prospects of winning more majors and getting a number one and, and re, you know reshaping the sport and his image, which he's certainly capable of, but. It really did leave me a lot of juicy stuff in my notebook, so I'm sorry to disappoint.
Oh my god, that's like you you did not just disappoint. I think that's the greatest story that's ever been told on this podcast before. So, man, it's it's making me it's making me really regret the time we spent talking about the golf media and knowing that I could have been tapping into some of these stories. I think. Oh, yeah, that was that was a funny one. I mean, I had, I, I had misgivings about calling his hotel room because I knew what was happening, but I just felt compelled to do so. Why did he answer the phone? Well, that's what's crazy. Don't answer the phone. There's no, there's no, there's no call I'm taking at that moment from DJ. It must have, it must have really been, you know, disrupting his his mojo. You know, the the phone was just ringing and ringing and ringing. So, yeah. Oh man. Uh, all right. Well, maybe maybe this is an opportunity to tell another one. But Howard Reese wants to know what your most memorable athlete interview was. Hmm. Most memorable athlete interview. Um, yeah. I mean, I was on a private jet with Rory flying across China and that was cool just because of the setting and the intimacy. Um, there, there's been some, there's been some like that where you, you just know it's kind of a fun little moment and you're certainly going to, it's going to enliven your story. But probably the most memorable actually was, I went down, and this was not even the golf beat, but I went to the um, the Super Bowl when it was in South Beach back in you know eleven or whenever the Saints the Saints won it, and Jeremy Shockey caught the winning touchdown. And for whatever reasons, I'd been in touch that week with Luther Campbell, aka Luke Skywalker of Two Live Crew, and I was trying to interview him for for something. And Shockey's a Miami guy. I knew he'd be with Luke celebrating on Sunday night, and so I text Luke at like three in the morning and he, he's like yeah man we're at club cameo come on down and if you know club cameo it is a little sketchy part of miami and i show up and i'm like literally the only white guy there um, and i kind of weave my way across the dance floor back to the vip and there's this bodyguard you know at the velvet rope who's just immense and i give him my card i'm like i'm here for luke and he just looks me up and this is like right out of a movie he looks me up and down he disappears comes back like kind of smirking and shaking his head like i can't believe i'm letting this jabroni into my vip so he, he lets me in and sure enough shocky's back there with like a Jaron James and a bunch of other Miami guys, and they're having a great old time. And um, he won't talk to me. He has no interest in talking to me. But the guy caught the winning, you know, touchdown of the Super Bowl. So I kind of hang out. Uh, I'm just, I'm gradually getting bodied into this corner, <laughs> like away from the the center of of, of where everything's happening just by the, the, the crush of humanity. And then I look over next to me, and there's Rick Ross, the rapper. And he, he's got a blunt that's the size of, like, a baseball bat. And he sees me, and he's like, oh, I'm going to haze the white guy. And he starts blowing smoke right at me. And I'm, like, totally buzzed just standing there. And I never did get a comment from Shockey, but I... <laughs> I sent all this into the guy who was writing the game story because I was on kind of like this Bucksman's holiday anyway, and a bunch of the some of the color from that night made it into the story, and um, that in its own weird way was totally memorable. And then I, I didn't leave the club until like six a.m. and my flight was at ten. Like, should I should I go and sleep for two hours? Now nah, I'll just stay up. So I was I was like eating pizza in South Beach at seven in the morning, watching you know everyone make the walk of shame out of the hotel room. 
problems. And it was it was just like this strange hallucinogenic kind of night. But uh, anytime you can get you know, Rick Ross, Luke Skywalker, and, and the, the Super Bowl hero all in the same place at the same time, it, it, was, it was memorable. Yeah, I'm not sure that qualifies as an athlete interview, but the story stands there, I think, so I'll, I'll allow it. But. <laughs> it was athlete color, but uh, it was observational reporting. Um, get, I'll get back to a couple quick golf ones. I just want to get your thoughts on what you're hearing from any guys out there or any, any reaction from what we're seeing from Bryson DeChambeau with the face-on putting. Have you, I don't know if you have any relationship with Bryson or, what, or if you have any thoughts on the, this, uh, this funky putting style he's going with. Well, for sure. In the fall of 2015, I did a big story on Bryson and spent a lot of time with him at this this really low-rent municipal golf course where he works on his game. It was in Fresno, California. It was December. It was freezing. There's no heater. He's, he's sitting in this, basically this vinyl tent. I mean, it's so cool in, in its own weird way. And even then, he was telling me that he was going to go face-on putting at some point. What he said to me was, I just, I just got to get my tour card secured, and then I'm going to do it. Because he went through all the reasons why and all the data, and he said it is by far the most effective method of putting. And you know, he'd won a couple amateur events in doing it, and his teacher, Mike Sai, was telling me that you know, he studied it with Bryson. He said, no one's ever putted as well as Bryson has putted face-on putting. It's just the mechanics of it, the way his eyes work. And he said he was going to set this game on fire if he actually does it on tour. And so now it's happening. So this has been in the works for a while. I mean, Bryson has been working on this for – this is not out of desperation. This is his rock – his bedrock belief that it's a superior method and that, that it's, it's, going to, it's going to change the game in, in some fundamental way. And he does enjoy being a contrarian, and there's always an element of that to whatever he does, but – um, this is, I think he's in this for the long haul. Um, when, you know, when you think about it, I mean, this example has been told many times before, but any other sport where there's a target, your eyes are on the target, you know, whether it's a catcher's mitt or it's a basketball rim or, or whatever. And so uh, I, think, I think it makes sense. I mean, personally, I'm standing over putts sometimes, and I forget what the line is. You know, like you, I, 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 I just lose it in my head. You get disoriented because you're thinking about your, your backstroke or your – you're, you're feeling the, the slope in your feet, whatever it is. I mean, it's easy to lose the line. And then you, you wind up looking back and you're standing over the ball forever. And um, It makes perfect sense. Now, you know, Bryson has put in hundreds of hours of this putting stroke. He was doing this, you know, a year and a half ago. So whether other players are, gonna, are going to make the switch, I don't know. But I think you're going to see juniors take this on and just like – you know, when I was out at this, this course, Dragonfly, there was, you know, a dozen little Brysons running around all playing the single-length set because they have the same teacher and they have the same beliefs and they have Bryson as a role model. And um, so I think it, it may bubble up organically from younger players who just started at an earlier age. But I'm not convinced that the current method of putting is the best way to do it. And, you know, maybe Bryson is right. I've heard I've, several people have sent me like pictures of USGA rules on the, a vertical shafted putter and all these angles and stuff. I haven't bothered reading it because I just don't care about that. But I found this interesting. I did hear uh, a nugget that he has received a phone call from the USGA that they are not crazy about the way that he is gripping the putter. Have you heard anything in that regards? I haven't, but I'll, I'll actually ask Bryson next time I see him. You know. <laughs> That, that, does anyone care what the USGA thinks at this point? I mean, <laughs> the credibility has been so shot. It's like, 
you know, he maybe he'll have to make an adjustment. I don't know, but is it that fundamentally different than what Adam Scott does? You know, when when he was using the broomstick, uh, you know, not against his chest, but still as an anchoring point. I mean, um, I, I think that I think if if the USGA is going to start picking on Bryson, then Bryson's going going to develop more fans and more support. Um, I think everyone likes a likes a likes a trailblazer, even even if they can even if they can be. Um, haughty about it as it, you know occasionally Bryson can be I like the guy a, a ton but he, he can be such a evangelist uh, I know he rubbed some people the wrong way but he really does believe this is the best method and um, you know I, I'm, I'm very curious to see how far he takes it yeah a lot of people think I hate him I just like to make fun of him I think he's an interesting guy I think he's I think he is good for the game and whatever that means but uh, I do find him interesting and I'm I, I want to see him succeed I think it would be I think it'd be a fun story to follow if he does uh, we'll get you out of here on this one. Last question from the fried egg. These guys are really into golf architecture, and they definitely know what they're talking about. But uh, he wants to know how you would compare Sand Valley to other Wisconsin courses like Whistling Straits, Aaron Hills, or where it ranks nationally for you. Yeah, I love Sand Valley. I played it right after the Ryder Cup. Uh, it's so much more user friendly than than Whistling Straits or Aaron Hills, where. You know both those courses. It's just like eighteen punches to the nuts when you play out there, and you know Sand Valley is very playable, um, which to me is a good thing. Uh, uh, toughness is, is not a compliment in how I, I want golf to be fun. I want courses to be quirky, and I don't want to lose ten balls around, and uh, I want to be able to play different shots. You know, Aaron Hills is so penal, and. Whistling Straits is too. You know, it's like the fairway is basically a red stake on both sides. It feels like. And, um, so, I, I loved everything about Sand Valley. It's not as unspectacular a piece of ground as um, you know some of these other neo classic golf courses. Uh, it's a little more gentle. But uh, David McClay Kid was there. When he's working on the, the second course. I walked in with him, and he, he actually got the better sight. Has a lot more movement and. Is, is a lot more topographically interesting. So I think it's going to be a home run as a destination. Um, you know, there's, they have they have 10,000 acres. They can put as many courses as they want out there. So it really is probably going to wind up with three or four courses and be, you know, the band and dunes of, of the Midwest. And, um, you know, the first course is, is, uh, is, is just so much fun to play. And it, it's just... It, you step off it, and you're like, you know what? I'd like to play that again right now. So that, that's that's my my ultimate test. I, I don't really feel the same way about Aaron Hills or Whistling Straits. Even I, I step off of those, and I need like two aspirin and a martini. So um, of those three, I'd probably prefer Sand Valley. Perfect. I'm uh, I'll be back Chicago based in like six months, so it doesn't sound like it'd be far away for me at all. So. Um, all right, Alan Shipnick, I'll let you go with that. Thank you for an hour of your time. Uh, unless you think there's anything out there that we missed. Well, I think there's a lot of things based on the questions that trickled in, but we're I know testing, we're we're testing the patience of your listeners already. So, um, no, this was great fun. Thanks for having me. It was quite a lively chat, and and uh, it, it's good to. Uh, I appreciate your your perspective from from far away. It, it's uh, it's a nice counterbalance to all the all the people I hear in the in the press room. So. Uh, <laughs> Thanks thanks for giving it back to me. Yep, you bet. Alan, thank you uh, for the time. Best of luck with the launch of the Knockdown. Uh, we'll be sure to check that out. Looking forward to hearing your podcast with Phil as well. And uh, we will do this again sometime. This is a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot more we can touch on, I'm sure. And we'll, uh, we'll save, up, save up some stories for next time, too. Okay, deal. All right, thanks, Alan. All right, see you, man. 
Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 